Good morning. I was thinking of the song that we sang this morning. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warm stock. But when I see thee as thou art, I will praise thee as I ought. And I pray that today we see Jesus as we ought, as he is, so that we can truly praise him as we ought. Um, pastor asked me if it was harder to put this message together than it was the one that was spur of the moment. And uh, absolutely, it was so much harder. I, um, I was amazed at how difficult it was to put all of my thoughts that I had on this subject into one spot that I could bring to you. And so I want to begin with a story that I've told. Um, Pastor's prayer actually reminded me of it. And so this isn't my notes, so I'm hoping it goes okay. But um, I want to start with a, a story that I've told to the youth group plenty of times, so uh, I apologize for those of you who are here that have heard this before. But I want you to think about if you're a child or if you are a parent, this works. If you're neither, then I'm sure you'll figure it out. You'll understand where I'm talking about. But pretend that I went to my daughter, Abigail, who's now almost 18. No, she's 18 now. She just turned 18. It's just amazing. Um, my daughter, my fourth, is almost two decades old. And I've been here uh, with the church much longer than that. That's what we were talking about earlier. So anyway, imagine I go to uh, Abigail and I say to Abigail, hey, I want you to go and clean your room. It's a mess. I need you to get it clean. And she goes upstairs and I don't see her for hours. And then she comes back and she comes up to me and she says, father, because she calls me that. She says, father, I went upstairs and I looked at what you asked me to do. And I thought really hard about it. I called some of my friends. I invited them over. And we had a study about the words that you spoke to me. You, you had asked me to clean my room, and we studied that. We looked at each word, and we parsed it out. We figured out what it meant. We looked at where that word came from in the old English or maybe the German. I don't, I don't know where those words come from. But... We looked at it all, and we did these word studies, and we put it all together. And we want you to know that we truly understand what you mean when you say, go clean your room. But has she done anything? Did she actually do what I asked her to do? And the answer is no. She just spent time studying and learning. So I pray that today, as we hear from God, um, whether it be this Sunday, next Sunday, on a Monday, Tuesday, you're listening to a sermon from somewhere else, that you will take it as not just a time to study, but a time to change your life, a time to do what is asked of you. And so today we're going to be looking at a subject that I personally struggle with, and that's why I wanted to preach on it, because... I wanted to be able to preach to myself as well. And so I pray that it means something to you as it has meant to me. Um, 
and a challenge for me, and I pray it's a challenge to you. So today we're going to be talking about, um, well, let me just start. I'm going to start with a name. A name is Edward Kimball. And I am sure none of you have ever heard of Edward Kimball. If you have, good for you. But rest assured, most people have never heard of Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. And he taught the older youth, similar to what I teach. And uh, he prayed for the boys specifically in his class because they were super hyper. And if you guys have teenagers, boys especially, especially if your last name is Rager. (laughs) Sorry, Daniel. But those boys are hyper, and Edward Kimball prayed for them. He, He prayed that they would each know God personally. He decided he would be very intentional with every single last one of these boys. Surely he thought about throwing in the towel at some times. And if you've ever taught the Bible to young boys, you know what his problem was. It's, it's like herding cats. But one ma- young man in particular just didn't seem to understand where the gos- what the gospel was. And so Kimball went to the shoe store that this young man worked at stocking the shelves and he confronted him in the stock room with the importance that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was and that young man was Dwight L. Moody in the stock room on that Saturday Dwight Moody believed the gospel and received Jesus Christ as his savior and in his lifetime Moody touched two continents for God with thousands professing Christ through his ministry So I want you to know that you can have an impact on those people that you come into contact with. It may just be that one, but that one can be very, very impactful to the world. So today we're talking about evangelism. And as we talk about evangelism, our first thought is to know who God is in his essence. There are many attributes of our God that all deserve long studies. Many books have been written as to who God is and what he is like, but today our message is to look at this one aspect of our wonderful God. My friends, I want you to know that our God does not hide who he is. He desires to be known, and he reveals to us who he is, one, through his creation, but also through the direct revelation to his people in the word of God. God knows you, And he wants you to know him. But the only way for us to truly understand who God is and what he is like is to read his word. It is something that you already know, I'm sure, but the Bible is literally God's word. We do not say that in some metaphorical way. It is not God's word in the sense that it's just important. It is not God's word in that he teaches good things. It is not God's word in that it is full of true things. All that is true but it does not make it God's word. Dear friends, it is God's word because he literally spoke the words to faithful men of old, led by the Holy Spirit who wrote them down for the benefit of all who would read them. Because it is God's word, we can trust it wholly to be truth 
for God is truth. Therefore, because it speaks about God and reveals who he is, that is because he wants us to know about him. He desires for you to know him and to follow his ways. He calls us to be like him, to be holy as he is holy, to be loving as he is loving, to be merciful as he is merciful. And when you open your Bible to begin your journey of finding out about God and learning what he has revealed about himself, the first place you would turn is to Genesis. And there you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is here that we learn the first two things about God. First, he is eternal. Second, he is a creator and therefore created. When we learn that he is, we then learn that he is good. We see that in the fact that everything that he, was cre- that he created was declared good. While there are surely other things we learn about our God in the next chapters, including that he provides for his people, I want to skip that God skip to what God reveals about himself in Genesis chapter 3. Here we are able to discern four more attributes of our God. He is just in doling out punishment for sin. He is merciful in not striking our first parents dead at that moment. He is gracious in providing them with the shedding of blood to create covering for their nakedness. And finally, we see that God is a saving God. And that is our first point, our only point, that God is a saving God. Genesis 3, we see in verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you or crush you, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this first gospel and what it will look like in its fullness is revealed even more. But it is here that our great and glorious God is revealed to be a God who saves those he has chosen to be his children. It is here that he reveals that he will provide a savior, one who will save those called to be his and with him eternally. The idea of a savior comes up throughout the Old Testament, most emphatically in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. You guys know this passage as the suffering servant. It's the fourth of the servant songs in Isaiah. And I'm going to read it real quick, and I just want you to hear how God tells his people that he will save them. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what he had been told them they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom he was he, the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, for it would render himself as a guilt offering. And he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. From the beginning, God declares himself to be a God who saves. But he then never lets his people forget it and continually reminds them. He continues to declare his intention to save them eternally. Throughout the Old Testament, as he saves them from the flood that destroyed the world, saves them from famine by placing Joseph in Egypt, saves them from the oppression of Egypt, saves them from, saves them from the horrors of the wilderness as they wandered, saves them from other nations in the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He continues to promise an eternal salvation that would come through a suffering servant. So, under our first main point, we have a point A, and that point is why does God save? Why does God save? Listen to Ezekiel 36, and I'll start in 22 and it will go through 32. And I'll read this. I just want you to hear what God says as to why he is saving. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. This is what, the God, what God says. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. God saves because it is what will bring himself the most glory. His name is exalted due to his saving work. God's desire is for his name to be glorified. He makes it clear to Israel through Ezekiel that nothing that he is doing to save them is for their sake. And we can be sure that it is not for our sake that God changes our heart from a heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh to be molded and formed into a heart that desires only what God desires, and that is his glory. He is a saving God because it glorifies his name. Remember when the people at the, or were at the base of Mount Sinai and they sinned by forming a calf out of the gold that God had so graciously provided to them through the Egyptians. God was angry. And he declared to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Sometimes I wonder if God looks upon me and says, Behold, I have seen Chris, and he is an obstinate person. Now then, let me alone, that I may, my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation, he says to Moses. So Moses then prays to God and implored him not to destroy the people. But why does Moses ask God not to destroy the people? What was the reason that Moses beseeched God to relent in his anger? Moses suggests that the pagan Egyptians would not think highly of God and his name for bringing out their, their, the, his people just to destroy them. He speaks to God about the glory of his name. He reminds God of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and that the glory of God's name would be tarnished. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus begins by declaring God's name to be holy. Jesus taught his disciples to understand and declare that God's name is hallowed. God declares in Ezekiel that it is not for Israel's sake, that he would save them, but it would be for the glory of his name, that he would save his chosen people. And while this passage in Ezekiel is directed to and is for the nation, the national Israel, the principle is still the same for all eternity. God is to be glorified because he is the only one who deserves to be glorified. He is the only one whose name is hallowed. He is the only one that deserves our praise and worship because he is full of glory. His primary purpose, even today, is to save, not for your sake, not for any created thing's sake, but for the sake of his holy name. And this is to be our primary motive for evangelizing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins with this question, and you know it. What is the chief end of man? And even if you have never memorized the entire catechism, 
I would be sure that most of you know the answer to this question, and that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God's word declares that we are to do all things to the glory of God. One of the ways we glorify God is by obeying his word and fulfilling his revealed will. Jesus repeats Deuteronomy when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that is one way we show our, and what is one way that we show our love for God? We obey his commandments. John 14, 21 says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So we come to the commandment of Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We all know the commandment given by Christ before his ascension. And there are many other commandments that we must obey to declare our love for our triune God. But since our topic is evangelism today, I will remind you of this one. By no means am I declaring that this is the foremost commandment given for us to accomplish. But my main focus, my friends, is that we obey his commandments. That when we obey his commandments, we are shouting our love for God. And we are exalting and glorifying the one who saved us. Therefore, when we obey this particular command to go and make disciples, then we are shouting our love for our God and we are exalting and glorifying the one who saved us. We love God because he first loved us. And his first act of love for us was to choose us, to share in the salvation that he would bring about through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He declared his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, he sent his only begotten son to live a perfect and righteous life, to die an horrific death on the cross so that his shed blood would bring about forgiveness of sin on our behalf and that Christ's righteousness would be imputed to us, charged to our account so that we could be justified, declared righteous. He loved us and now we must return that love by obeying his command to make disciples. He saved us not for our sake, but for the glory of his name. And we must now show, we must now glorify his name by obeying his command to make disciples. Listen to Psalm 96, 2 through 4a. It says, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. When we share the gospel with others, we are doing exactly what this psalm declares us to do. We are proclaiming good tidings of his salvation. We are telling of his glory among the nations and his wonderful deeds among the peoples. When we tell others about the wonders of the work of Christ, then we are exalting the name of our God and glorifying his name. Do you desire to bless his name? Then proclaim his salvation. But I fear, my friends, that we do not see what comes next. This is not 
something the psalmist declares we should do every once in a while. It is not something he says we should do only when we are not afraid. It is not something he says we should do only when we are not worried about what other people will think about us. He proclaims that we are to share good tidings of God's salvation from day to day. Obviously, this is not a command to literally share the gospel every single day, but that we should be desirous of proclaiming his salvation every single day, and that we should make it a priority as often as we can and let nothing stand in our way. When we proclaim his salvation and tell of his glory and his wonderful deeds, then the psalmist says we are glorifying his name and declaring it to be great because he is greatly to be praised, worshipped, glorified because of these wonderful deeds and because of his glory and because he is a saving God. So the first reason that God saves is because it is for his glory. The second reason that he saves is because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Look at Ezekiel 18, 23, specifically, I'm going to read 21 through 23. He says, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes, and practices justice and righteousness, he will surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways of evil and live? Ezekiel 18, 30-32 continues this thought, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that, the, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit for you will die, O house of Israel. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel is witnessing to the people. He is telling them the same thing that Jesus said when he first started his earthly ministry. Repent. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus preaches, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ezekiel makes it clear that God would much rather a person repent and turn away from her sin, his or her sins than to die in their sins. God is not one that relishes in the death of the wicked. He is a God of justice, and he will sentence all sinners to hell if they do not accept Christ and repent from their sins. But that does not mean that he enjoys seeing them in torment for eternity. It is his desire that all men repent and live. Here we come to an interesting point, and I will not spend much time on it, but I want to make something clear. I am not advocating that God will save all people. Nowhere in Scripture does God say that all men will be saved, only that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is not a contradiction. It is a beautiful harmony of the grace and mercy of God with the justice of God. Many theologians look at it as God having a revealed will, which is him declaring that his desires for all men is to come to know him, but he also has a secret will that only he knows that sovereignly declares who will actually be chosen to have their heart changed 
to be able to accept Christ and repent and be saved. Again, this is not a contradiction or a paradox. It is a beautiful harmony of God's eternal attributes working in conjunction with each other to accomplish what will eternally bring the most glory to his name. It is God fulfilling his perfect plan for his glory and his creation with his sovereign will. Ezekiel 33, 11, and this is a big, big, you should write this one down, is what I'm trying to say. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. My friends, what God does not declare at this time and what he reveals in the work of Christ is that we cannot do this on our own. It is only through the imputed righteousness of Christ and his saving work on the cross that any of this can occur. It is only through God, the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts to change what we want from sin to be glory to our God. It is through the mercy and grace of God working in harmony with his justice that we can be saved by Christ, receiving our punishment for our sins. And this is our secondary reason for evangelizing. Our first primary reason is to glorify God. Our secondary reason is because we love our neighbor. Jesus continues, the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What greater need has any man than to know Christ? What greater good can we do to any man than to set before him the knowledge of Christ? The impulse to evangelize should spring up spontaneously in us as we see our neighbor's need of Christ. It is a tragic and ugly thing when Christians lack desire and are actually reluctant to share the precious knowledge that they have with others whose need of it is just as great as their own. I would dare say that most people would love themselves enough to share God with themselves if they could. But do we love our neighbor in the same way? In John chapter 1, Jesus comes and Andrew begins to follow him. And the first thing Andrew does is he goes and he tells his brother, Simon Peter. Philip also begins to follow Christ. And the first thing he does is he goes and tells Nathaniel about Christ. Neither of them were told to share what they had experienced and understood about Jesus. They did it naturally and spontaneously because God had saved them. They had found the Christ. It is a great privilege to evangelize. It is a wonderful thing to be able to tell others of the love of Christ, knowing that there is nothing that they need more urgently to know and no knowledge in the world that can do them so much good there is no greater way to show that we love our neighbor as ourselves than to care for his eternal soul and to share with him the love of Christ that was shared with you. The gospel is the most precious gift that we could ever give to someone. It is that, it is that which has eternal benefits. There is no greater love than that we lay down our life, our own wants, our own desires, for our neighbor and give him the gift of the knowledge of eternal life. So that is why God saves. 
So our next question is, who does God save? And there's an obvious answer to this question. I do not presume to have anything other than the obvious answer. Psalm 96 implores us to share with the nations and all the peoples. Jesus commands us to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. We truly are to preach to all men and women. But I want to remind you what this really means. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable of a sower of seed. We are all familiar with the story, so I will not read it. But I want to point out a few things. Jesus explains the parable to the disciples, so there is not much mystery in the story, but there are a couple of things easy to miss. First, the seed is the word of God. It is the gospel. And this we know, but I want you to see that the sower does not discriminate where he sows the seed. He does not find the most fertile soil and toss the seed only there. He spreads that seed everywhere he can reach. Some of the seed falls on the hard path, some on the rocky soil, some on the thorny soil, and some finally find that fertile ground. And we recognize that this parable is about the soils, and that some soil is prepared to accept the seed and some are not. But the sower does not know which soil is fertile and will accept the seed and which soil is rocky or thorny. He sows wherever he is at and wherever he can reach. We should be the same. I'm not saying that we should reach out to the bars and clubs and other dodgy places. I am saying that if we come into contact with people that do frequent those places, that we are not to discriminate. Secondly, notice that the seed does not change. It is the same seed that is sown on all the soils. The sower doesn't change his seed, just as we are not to change our message. I also want to point out a couple of things we see from the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. There Jesus preaches to this Samaritan woman and shares, with the sa- shares the saving knowledge of himself. First notice that the text says that he had to go through Samaria. While this is the most direct route, I think there's more to this statement. I have no doubt that Jesus and his disciples were taking the shortest route for where they needed to go. But sovereignly speaking, Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. We, too, have divine appointments. If God is sovereign, and he is, then God has given us a direct route through Samaria. And we have appointments we must make. If you find yourself in a place that you didn't necessarily plan on being, it may have, it may have been that you had to pass through Samaria for your divine appointment. Secondly, Jesus doesn't hurry through Samaria. This was a place that a place and people that most Jews did not want to deal with. When necessary, they would pass through, but they would not take their time. But Jesus stops here at this well. And that's not really that interesting. I'm sure that many Jewish travelers stopped at this well to get a drink, but they did not linger. Jesus, on the other hand, sends his disciples into town to get food. He is not afraid of what he could find in this city. He was excited for this appointment. Since we, know, we now know that we have our own appointments, I pray that you will not try to quickly escape them, that you will linger when you, when you can see this appointment all the way through the end. 
Next, we see how Jesus doesn't shy away from speaking to those that are undesirable. First, this was a woman. Strike one. Second, she was a Samaritan. Strike two. Third, she was a woman that had been with many men, a repeated and gross sinner. Strike three. But Jesus doesn't see her as undesirable. Jesus sees her as someone to love, someone that deserves to hear the gospel, someone to evangelize to. There is no one too far away from the reach of the saving grace of God. No matter their sin or yours today, Jesus' saving grace is great enough to wash it all away. Do not look at someone as too far gone. To save the grace of God on our lives, we too would have been just too far gone. Our sins would have led us to the same hell that this Samaritan woman was headed to before Christ came into her life and disrupted her life. He can save all and desires to save all that are called. And since we do not know who is and who isn't called, then we must share with all that we come in contact with. Finally, see that Jesus doesn't water down the gospel. He tells her of her sin and tells her of the living water that can quench her thirst of righteousness forever. My friends, do not shy away from confronting sin. Remember that sinners are in the darkness and they love the darkness and the darkness seems like it is light to them. Friday, we were out at Carrie and Belinda's place and the kids were running around in the dark. I looked and realized Oh, wait, they were running around in the dark, and my wife was standing on the porch underneath the bright light. And she said something to the effect of, those kids are going to get hurt playing like that in the dark. I looked and realized that to the kids, it wasn't dark. They could see because it was just starting to get dark. But to us, under the light of the porch, it looked very dark out there. And I thought, what a great picture. Those of us under the light can see how dark it is out there. But those in the dark cannot understand it, that it was dark. Because they can see as their eyes adjust to that dark. When we are in the light of Christ, the darkness does and should look very dark. So dark that you do not want to venture into it. The brighter the light, the closer to Christ you get, the more dark your sin, or your own sin and others looks. But for those in the darkness of sin, it doesn't appear to be all that bad. As we speak to those in the darkness, we have to help them see how dark it truly is and help to lead them to the, to the light of Christ so that they can see how truly dark it is where they once were. Lastly, and this is one of my favorite parts of this story in John chapter 4, Jesus is satisfied in the work that he does sharing the living water with this woman. He had sent the disciples into town to get food. And when they returned, they begged him to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Oh, my friends, I pray that we are satisfied when we are doing the work of God and sharing the gospel with sinners. Do you desire this satisfying food that fills you to fullness when you work for Christ? I pray that you do. 
when you follow the call and make your appointment so that you can tell of the good tidings of salvation, you will be satisfied as only the food of God can satisfy. This is no Snickers, a sugar-laden snack that brings a counterfeit high and temporary satisfaction, but a full meal provided by the one that can satisfy your every need. I pray that you will eat from this food. So we've seen why God saves. We've seen who God saves. And now we will come to how does God save. How does God save? I'm not going to spend time talking about the fact that God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. The beginning, middle, and end of the process for salvation is entirely in the hands of God. In this church, we may all wholeheartedly agree. But it is important to know that technically all Christians believe that God is sovereign. There is not a single Christian that does not believe that even though there are many who say that does not believe this even though there are many who say they do not. There are many who profess to believe that man has some part to play. But in reality even they agree if they are truly Christian that God is sovereign. One of the foremost characteristics of a Christian is that they pray to God. If you do not believe God to be sovereign, then why do you pray? What can he accomplish if he is not in control? What can he do if he is but on the sidelines watching? So not only do we all believe that God is sovereign, in particular we believe that he is sovereign in salvation. When was the last time you prayed to thank yourself for saving yourself? May it never be. But going one step further, how many of you pray for someone or multiple someones to come to faith? If God was not able to affect the salvation of mankind, then why would we pray to him at all? So we no, need no longer to argue about God's sovereignty in these matters. If you pray, especially if you pray asking God to save someone you love and care about, then you believe that God is sovereign in salvation. I also am not going to make much time in talking about the Trinity. This is an essential Christian doctrine and very important to understand, but right now I am worried about a different topic. So I wish to state the truth that God is one God and that he is made up of three distinct persons. Each member of the Godhead is not a separate part of God. They are all holy and completely God. They are equal in essence, nature, attributes, and glory. God in his wholeness, all three members, have always been God. No member of the Godhead became God in any at any singular moment in time. God is also three distinct persons, and while equal in all ways, are still separate in person and in role. Therefore, each member of the Trinity has a distinct role in salvation. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but I just want to quickly point out some of the roles of each member of the Godhead. This is how God saves. So first, we'll look at the work of the Father. I won't read it. You all know John 3.16. In John 3.16, it says that the Father loved us. And therefore, his work is that he sent his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read that God sovereignly chooses. Also in Ephesians 1, we read that he adopts. None of these are in any particular order. It's just 
the way it's stated in the text. Ephesians 1 also says that he freely bestows his grace upon us. And those are some of the works of the Father. What are the works of the Son? The works of the Son, John 1.14 says that he came and dwelt among men. Philippians 2.8 says that he took the form of a bondservant, humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Ephesians 1 tells us that he redeemed us through the shedding of his blood. And then we come to the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16.8 tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Ephesians 1 tells us that he makes known to us the mystery of God's will. Titus 3.5 informs us that he washes and renews us. And that's the work of God and how he saves. But there's more to how he saves. We also see that the, there is a work of the word. Isaiah 55 says that the word will not return empty. It will not return void. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us that the word of God teaches, it reproves, it corrects, and it trains in righteousness. That is the work of the word. And finally, we come to the work of God's children. Matthew 18, 28, 19 through 20, we've read it before, I'll read it again. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the work of those God has called unto salvation. We have a responsibility of making the gospel known. Christ specifically spoke to his disciples here, but this command was given to them as a representative of the church. This is Christ's command not only to them specifically, but also to the whole church. Evangelism is the responsibility of every Christian. We are all under orders to devote ourselves to spreading the good news. It is not just for those that go to the furthest parts of the world as a missionary. They are doing their part where God has called them to be. It is the call of God on every believer to participate in bringing the good news wherever we find ourselves. This is a responsibility that cannot be shrugged off any more than the responsibility to come here and sit in these chairs each and every week. God is both king and judge. He orders and controls all things, human actions among them, in accordance with his own eternal purposes. He, at the same time, holds every man responsible for the choices he makes and the courses of actions that that man pursues. Therefore, hearers of the gospel are responsible for their reaction to it. If they reject it, they are guilty of their unbelief. We, like Paul, being entrusted with the gospel, is responsible to preach it. If we neglect his commission, we bring woe upon ourselves as paul said in first corinthians 9 16 for if i preach the gospel i have nothing to boast of for i am under compulsion for woe is me if i do not preach the gospel as we fulfill this command it is important to remember that we are not the ones that save it is god who brings men and women under the sound of, of the hearing of the gospel it is God who brings them to faith in Christ. We are the tool or the instrument that God uses to bring about that salvation of others. But the power to save is not in the tool. It is in the hand of the one who wields and controls the tool, 
We must not forget this fact, or we will come to rely too much on results. If we regarded it as our job, not simply to present Christ, but actually to produce converts, to evangelize not only faithfully, but also successfully, our approach to evangelism would become pragmatic and calculating. Our approach to evangelism would be like the sower who just goes and tries to find only the fertile ground. We would focus on the numbers and the how instead of loving these people and telling them about what Christ has done on their behalf if they but accept Christ as their Savior, accepting that they are a sinner in need of that Savior. It is right to recognize our responsibility to engage in aggressive evangelism. It is right to desire the conversion of unbelievers. It is right to practice and to perfect what you know and what you will say so that your presentation is clear and forcible as possible. If we preferred that converts should be few and far between and did not care whether our proclaiming of Christ was clear, there would be something wrong with us. But it is not right when we take it upon ourselves as being responsible for securing the salvation of sinners and look to our techniques to accomplish what only God can accomplish. To do that is to introduce ourselves into the office of the Holy Spirit and to exalt ourselves as the agents of the new birth. J.I. Packer said, The point that we must see is this. Only by letting our knowledge of God's sovereignty control the way in which we plan and pray and work in God's service can we avoid becoming guilty of trying to do it on our own. For where we are not consciously relying on God, there we shall inevitably be, be found relying on ourselves. And the spirit of self-reliance is a blight on evangelism. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is a command to not only make disciples, but a command to teach and disciple those who follow. We are to be a preacher and a teacher. Our responsibility does not end at just the sharing, at just the preaching. It is imperative that we continue in that relationship by teaching the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.11 says, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Colossians 1.28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul declares that he is more than just a bringer of the gospel. He is a teacher. As Christ's ambassadors, our first job is to get across the message that God has entrusted us to deliver. Paul said that Christ sent him to preach the gospel. The Greek is literally to publish the good news. This good news is a full and final disclosure of what the Creator has done and will do to save sinners. It is news about Jesus, about Jesus of Nazareth. It is the news of the incarnation, the atonement, and the kingdom, the cradle, the cross, and the crown of the Son of God. It is the news of how God glorified His servant Jesus by making Him Christ, the world's long-awaited Prince and Savior. It is the news of how God made his son man and how as man God made him priest and prophet and king 
and how as priest God also made him a sacrifice for sins, and how as prophet God also made him a lawgiver to his people, and how as king God has also made him judge of all the world, and given him prerogatives which in the Old Testament were exclusively Jehovah's own, namely to reign till every knee bows before him, and to save all who call on his name. In short, the good news is just this, that God has executed his eternal intention of glorifying his son by exalting him as a great savior for great sinners. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward to be found trustworthy. As believers called by God unto salvation, we are but mere servants of the one true King, Jesus Christ. As servants, we are stewards of the mysteries of God, namely the gospel. Therefore, we as stewards, we, as stewards, we are called to be found trustworthy with the treasure of the gospel and not keep it to ourselves, but to share it with all people. So we've seen why God saves, we've seen who God saves and how God saves, and finally we will look at when does God save. And the answer is now. Now is the time for salvation. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. While this is a command to seek the Lord, it is also a treatise on when to seek him, and therefore on when to preach and teach the gospel. That is when he may be found and while he is near. My friends, there will be a time when God is no longer near. When he will, may no longer be able to be found. We do not know when this time will be. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be next year. And it could be many years from now. But when that day comes, my friends... Do not be the one that failed to share what, he has been, what has been entrusted to you. Today is the day of salvation. And therefore, today is the day to bring the gospel to all who can hear. Today is the day to be the bringer of good news. There is no other day. As long as today is still called today, then it is the day, and there is no other, that is best to bring God's plan to save sinners to the sinners. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, for he says at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul makes it clear that now is the day of salvation. Do not hesitate to go forth and tell all the world. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for just bringing us here to hear from you and from your word. Father, you have shared who you are, and you are a saving God. So, Father, as stewards of the mysteries of God, we pray that we also will be ones who follow you in saving others. Not that we can do it on our own, not that we can do anything, but we pray that we will be tools for you to use. May you bring us power and give us boldness as we share the gospel with others. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.